0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies on the New Books Network. My name is Diana Dehanova, and I'll be your host today. I'm speaking with Dr. Alexander Smith, reader in Russian studies in the Department of European Languages and Cultures at the University of Edinburgh. We're discussing her 2020 book, Poetic Canons, Cultural Memory, and Russian National Identity After 1991, co written with Catherine Hodgson, professor of Russian at the University of Exeter. This book is the winner of the Alexander Nov 2020 Prize from the British Association for the Slavonic and Eastern European Studies. Dr. Smith, welcome to the program and thank you for joining me today.
1: Yes, thank you for having me.
0: Uh, So to start us off, could you talk a little bit about your research background and how this book came together?
1: Well, I've been working for a long time on the Pushkin myth in Russian 20th century poetry and I've written quite a lot about it. And Catherine Hodgson actually wrote a book on Olga Birgoltz, but also on women's war poetry and several articles on war poets. So it just happened that in 2009 we nine, we've decided to apply for a research grant and have a project for three years. So our initial idea was to have a collection of articles and invite different scholars who could write on poetry and on changing poetic canons. So we produced a book. Um, after this project, uh, there were several uh, people who were writing on um sort of a new approaches really to Russian poetry on emigre poetry on the assimilation of some emigre poets into contemporary sort of a canon and so on. But in principle when we applying for this grant, we were told it would be good actually to have a co-authored book. And we've decided to do it as soon as we finish our uh, first project. So this is sort of like an extension of this HSC grant, uh, and we've actually worked for about seven years in this book. So that was quite rewarding and very interesting on many levels. So basically we decided that we sort of have enough knowledge between the two of us to write about different aspects, really, of the canon formation in the post-Soviet period. And also we were interested in the way how memory really affects poetry, how we could approach poetry from the point of view of um, some memories, really, that people express or respond to in poetry. So that's how we decided to create a conceptual framework framework that relates to Russian identity, but also to the use of different kinds of memories. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and can you talk a little bit more about the the format of the book and how the, your uh, different specializations kind of came together in this project?
1: Well, the book is called Paetic Canons, Cultural Memory and Russian National Identity after 1991. So it is... Um, Actually, has five hundred eighteen pages, and um, what we've done, we've written a long introduction together. It's about fifty page long, really, about the post Soviet poetic canons, cultural memory, and Russian identity. So we use different approaches to memory and canons, but especially what we found very helpful in an overarching manner to uh, use um, some memory studies that talk about triumphant memory and traumatic memory. So from our observations, it seems that uh, post-Soviet sort of space somehow tends to oscillate between um, traumatic memory and triumphant memory. And somehow sort of our project sort of uh, emerged just... um, at a time when people started talking about memory wars in Russia. So it was quite interesting to see how it really uh, is represented in poetry. So Catherine, for example, wrote a chapter on empire, the appeal of empire and the attempt to propose a new nationalist canon. So she was talking about different people who wrote about empire and some of them were extremely nationalistically minded and imperialistic-minded. Um, so she was um, very interested in this, but in some ways we thought that um, these particular people whom she discusses. Of course, from the first glance, they might look different from each other, but they still had some imperialistic tendencies. So she writes quite a lot about Bandarenko, for example, but also Yuri Koznetsov, and even um, Joseph Brodsky and vysotsky, So she found that they all have some something to say about... Um, imperial past or imperial future. Then she wrote a very interesting chapter on the canon of Wupu and commemoration, and she discusses some case studies from 1995 to 2010. And what actually emerged from her findings is the fact that if you look at Russian anthologies that were published during the Soviet period and in the post-Soviet period, it seems there is very little difference between them. So, of course, occasionally people might just um, add some uh, odd poets, uh, but in principle, uh, this particular uh, topic seems to be... um, very, very similar to the Soviet period, so the canon of war poetry more or less actually stayed this uh, the same, and we could understand this of course, in the context of putin's desire perhaps to appropriate Russian history to appropriate Russian victory day, and so on so obviously that is used quite a lot I mean a lot of Soviet war poetry was used a lot for propaganda and continues to be used um on Internet, uh, during various concerts, uh, and so on. Then she wrote as well about village poetry, Reinventing a Lost World, and she talks about Kluiv, Yesenin, and Twardowski. And what is interesting that, again, Yesenin continues to be one of the most popular, if not the most popular, poets today. Uh, but she was very interested as well in writing about Twardovsky because Twardovsky actually started as a village poet and he was very much opposed to... um soviet policies under stalin regarding collectivization so basically he's still sort of seen mostly as a war poet who wrote about vasily turkin but somehow she discovered that a lot of people don't really want to recognize him as a as a as a village poet and he actually was quite uh devoted to this topic Um, Then I've written uh, a chapter on Russian Gulag poetry and its reception. So basically, what is interesting, there was a huge, huge sort of uh, demand, really, to publish new anthologies that could include uh, Russian Gulag poetry in the 1990s. And this, of course, coincides with... uh, um, activities of the memorial. It is a special association that deals with personal memories, with personal archives related to Gulag. And it's interesting that there was a uh, there was an anthology produced by Viliensky who collected a lot of Russian Gulag poetry, but somehow people didn't receive it very well and they wanted to say perhaps we shouldn't have such a genre as Gulag poetry, perhaps we should talk about prison poetry. So I've s- found it extremely fascinating this trend somehow to uh, sort of uh, to marginalize this particular type of poetry and this is precisely related to national trauma and somehow people still I think don't have enough tools really to assess this type of poetry but of course on the other hand because of the strong interest in many poets of this type in the 1990s we have for example some sites that have like an anthology online or there are some special sites related to Shalamov, and you could find a lot of his poetry there. So I think the internet actually helps still to have this type of poetry visible. Then I have written as well a chapter on rediscovering the religious and elegiac roots of Russian lyric poetry, and I particularly was interested in Soviet underground poets like Boboshev, for example, and uh, people who were associated with Anna Akhmatova. And I found it very interesting that Akhmatova um, was perceived as a religious poet, really, by many uh, younger poets, like Bobashev, for example. Um, and uh, sort of even Naiman, um, in some of the poems that he wrote about Akhmatova, he's using religious imagery. Yes, and also I've uh, written a chapter on the Pushkin myth in New Context, so it is post-Soviet rewriting of the tradition. What I find quite interesting in comparison with other studies on Pushkin is the fact that um, there was, of course, a myth created by Russian modernists. Then during the Soviet times, of course, Pushkin was presented as a great fighter for freedom, Um, you know, a person who was opposed To Russian autocracy and so on but what I find quite interesting that in the post-Soviet period a lot of poets like Prigov, Kibirov um, who actually wrote um, in Uh, relation to the Pushkin myths, they really wanted to engage with philosophical aspects of Pushkin's poetry or religious aspects. For example, some even uh, religious poets like Olga Sedakova, they became interested really in some of the aspects of Pushkin's legacy that were not really discussed widely during the Soviet period. And also there's some interest in really philosophical Poems, even written by Kibirov, that talk about environmental issues, and they engage with Pushkin and Goethe. Sort of, he looks at them as if they were like uh, forerunners of modernity, right? They had already some interesting things to say about uh, the impact of modern life on ordinary people. And uh, then the last chapter that I've written, it isn't for Soviet parody and ironic musing and the new poetic canon so and then we had a conclusion in which we discussed this idea of russian national identity that somehow is linked either to triumphant memory or traumatic uh, memory uh, why i was interested in in uh, parody it is because um for several years, I think it started in 2007 or so. There was a project um, uh, which actually featured Bikov, and Bikov wrote a lot of poems. and They were performed on the stage, there were sort of like performances around this or that poem. They became very popular on the internet. There were several shows, even when Bikov and people who performed in this sort of shows would be traveling to different. Um, cities in Russia, but also they even came to London. And I was just quite fascinated. They would take, for example, a poem written by yesenin right? And they'll try to imbue this uh, poem with some contemporary references. So it had sort of a, a very interesting... Angle so people could recognize a poet written in the past, but also they could use this poem as lens, as a lens to look at the present. So I found that that was a very interesting function of parody. It wasn't something that was dismissive of Soviet or pre-Soviet legacy, but it was just a very interesting attempt to bring this poetry from the past sort of uh, back to life and make it relevant to contemporary audiences Uh, so it is a huge uh, huge book it covers a lot of aspects but we found it uh, very useful really to put into one book all our findings because I hope students could use uh, this book you know because we collected a lot of information, we analyzed it, and we presented it in a way that is quite accessible, really.
0: Absolutely. I'm, I'm uh, actually planning a post-Soviet literature course for this fall, um, and I will definitely be um, using um, some articles from here. So it's an, a wonderful resource for that. Um, so I wanted to ask you, so I wanted to go in a little bit more detail about some of the chapters. Um, but first, could you talk a little bit about sort of, uh, how you situate the study in the existing body of research on post-Soviet Russian poetry and also, uh, cultural memory?
1: Well, I think first of all, um, there were some articles written about Russian poetry, but they were not connected to cultural memory at all. So a lot of people wrote about postmodernist trends, like for example, there are some. There is a good book by Sofia Hagi, and she actually wrote about Kibirov, and I found her book very useful. Uh, also, there was a very interesting book um, written about Slutsky. But Slutsky is uh, presented uh, in that particular book as a um, as a Jewish poet, really Jewish Soviet poet, uh, which is very very interesting. But s- somehow there was no uh, yes, and there were just uh, sort of uh, numerous articles talking about postmodernist trends, especially in relation to Prague. You know, like Stephanie Sandler wrote a couple of articles or so. But she actually collected a lot of interesting information about experiments in contemporary poetry. So she discovered some names that were not quite well known before to us, like Alexandra Papova, for example, who is an emigre poet who lives in Rome. Um, So she actually was quite interested in experimental sort of nature. But what we tried to do, we tried really to look at it in a broader context. We wanted to see, you know, because poetry was always very popular in Russia, and it remains being very popular, especially with YouTube channels, internet sites. Uh, We discovered that there's a huge interest in poetry, and people wanted to go back in time and look at modernist poetry, the Silver Age poetry, and so on. But at the same time, you know, people didn't have really any uh, sort of understanding that uh, somehow... All this is very, very strange. Because what happened with the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think it is quite incredible that already after the Perestroika, people discovered a lot of trends that were suppressed, like, for example, unofficial poetry, right? Or poetry written in Gulag. There were already some publications coming out. Like, for example, even Ahmadov's Requiem was really published in 1987, quite late, you know, in comparison with the Perestroika period, which started in 1985. So many more things were published in the beginning of the 1990s. So what you see, that you see a very strange hybrid really type of canon because all of a sudden people were reading still Soviet poetry, then modernist poetry a lot of it was not published before then emigre poetry uh, but also post-Soviet poetry that was quite experimental so it was very very difficult I think for readers to be really um, well oriented in this space and we wanted to see how actually people wanted to perhaps to conceptualize uh, all these types of poetry that was coming out. And, uh, for example, there was uh, an attempt to bring some women poets together, like, for example, Women of the Silver Age. There were some anthologies devoted to this. But, of course, one of the most important people who wanted really to organize all this material was Yevtushenko, because he published an anthology which is called Strophe Veka, and his idea was to look at Russian poetry as a as a window upon Russian history, so to speak. So his, for example, choice of poems was related just to the representation of history. And I find it actually quite strange. But at the same time, we could see that he had a certain position. He had a certain vision of poetry. And he thought that people could read these poems in order to understand some main sort of uh, trends of Russian history, like collectivization, um, Second World War, you know, GULAG, Perestroika, and so on. But I find that it's sort of a very, very strange um, vision of poetry because it just, to my mind, it was very narrow. So, therefore, we wanted to see what other people are doing. And we could see that, of course, there are some sites on internet and they wanted to promote contemporary poets who are quite experimental so but all this was quite disparate so and of course I remember in the uh, beginning of this this century, there were some interviews with Chudakova. Although she wasn't talking about poetry, she was talking about Bulgakov and about Soviet authors. And she said, you know, I've realized now that in the past I used to be called a specialist on Soviet literature, but now we don't have such a thing as Soviet literature because now we understand there was literature of the Soviet period Right? So because there was literature that was sub, uh, suppressed, it wasn't published, um, or there was Dad or Summer's Dad and a lot of unofficial poetry. But some of the poets whom we used to know as Soviet today turned out to be not so Soviet and so on. So therefore I think that what sort of made us think about some um conceptualization really of this poetic space that we wanted just to bring more clarity really and to show to people that some people actually uh should not look for one russian canon any longer like it was done in the 19th century like you have pushkin and you have other 19th century poetry who came after him because it's impossible to have one canon And we discovered that there are really several canons that coexist together and sometimes even have the same poet, like, for example, Akhmatova, right? On the one hand, she could belong to the anthology on Russian war poetry and you could see that she's a war poet, but that's not the only thing that you could say about Akhmatova, right? You could see her as well as part of uh, Silver Age culture, so, if you are doing an anthology on Silver Age poetry, you would include her there. But also, you could see her as a religious poet, because she influenced people like Natalia garbanevska who became uh, very re- religious, and she actually wrote very interesting religious poetry, uh, and she was very much influenced by Akhmatova. So, it's quite interesting that you even have the same author who could really be part of maybe three or four canons at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, actually, so you mentioned how Akhmatova is um, often read as an orthodox or religious poet. Um, can you talk a little more about how the rehabilitation of religion has influenced this um, the view of the canon and the development of post-Soviet poetry?
1: I think uh, it is quite an interesting, really, question because Uh, We see some people who started openly to talk about religious feelings, use religious imagery, Um, and from uh, that point of view, I think Sabgir is a very interesting case, because Sabgir, during the Soviet period, he was mostly known as a poet who was writing a lot of things for children but um, during the post-Soviet period he actually published some books and you could see that he's using a lot of religious imagery I think it gave him a chance really to talk about Open well about it openly, but also he is using religious imagery that is related not only to Christ, to Christianity but also to um, uh, to Judaic tradition and so on. But I find that sort, of, sort of very, very interesting because he managed sort of uh, to make it relevant to people, and he managed um, to bring some images that would sort of speak to contemporaries of Sabkir today. And uh, the same goes for Gorbanerska, who actually started coming. I mean, she was an emigrant. poet. She's usually known as a poet who who just... uh, Uh, went to the Red Square uh, to protest against the invasion of Prague in 1968. But in principle, she was an editor, of course, of um, an emigrant journal in Paris, and she lived there for a long time. But she wrote a lot of religious poetry, and I find it so interesting that she had a chance to perform it on television, or she would be interviewed by many... Um, television channels or internet sort of channels in Ukraine and in Russia and she became sort of uh, quite visible Um, and I find it very interesting because it's something that is very much her um, sort of mindset really she became uh, like Akhmatova she just sort of wanted to show that one can be very humble and one could just be totally Um, devoted to God, but not in a, you know, sort of a pompous way, right? But in a very quiet sort of, you know, like she writes about everyday life, in a way that it's um, just part of her life, just like Ahmad. Vibe. I'm using one example when she talks about her chores, that she needs to do a lot of um, she needs to wash a lot of dishes, in fact, she still would like to write a poem as well. And it just sort of uh, it goes together really with her image that she thinks, well, that is her chores, you know, that she's happy to do them. You know, and she's happy just to to be able just to survive to to enjoy life in a way because it was presented to her by God, right? So it's like a divine responsibility, really to go through all this chores. And she sort of doesn't have this romantic image of poetry or something uh, that goes against everyday life. I find it extremely interesting. And, of course, Olga Sedakova is very much similar to this. Olga Sedakova wrote some elegic uh, poetry, you know, On Death of Brodsky, for example. And she uh, is very much sort of a... a Person who brings together classical imagery but also some religious imagery. Like she talks about the Mother of God. Quite often she refers as well to her um, idea of um, being uh, of living in truth really. And what I find quite interesting that she has, for example, an allergic poem dedicated to her cat who passed away, and to her it is a part of this divine sort of a world, right? She feels that everyone should be raided in this world, including cats, including animals. So I find it actually quite refreshing, but of course it only became possible because of uh, the emergence of many religious communities in Russia in the post-Soviet period, because Sedakova, for example, gets invited very often by different communities, you know, not only in Moscow, but outside Moscow. People invite her to come, for example, to St. Petersburg, to a particular church, and they organize evenings for her. So um, I find it, of course, uh, it would be impossible to think about it even during the perestroika period.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for me, this recalls, um, you know, an orthodox tradition of kind of sanctifying the everyday and the way that poetry um, for some of these uh, poets kind of takes the role of a kind of a, yeah, sort of a sanctifying prayer, I guess, is the way I would put it, um, for everyday life.
1: Yes, that's a a good term. Yes. (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah, just sort of coming from my religious studies perspective. Um, So, Uh, I wanted to ask about so related to the question of uh, traumatic versus triumphant memory, uh, is this role of nostalgia for lost empire, um, which is a key feature of uh, post Soviet nationalist thinking, of course. Um, And this is connected, as you mentioned, to the importance placed on poetry in the commemoration of war. Um, So could you discuss this connection, particularly in terms of the current um, Russian imperial project?
1: Yes, I'm just sort of opening the. I think it is pages 84 and 85. And of course, uh, sort of Catherine Hodgson, she talks about Brodsky's position as being quite ambivalent. And she, for example, talks about his, his sort of a poem related to Zhukov, Nasmir Zhukov And uh, she actually sees it uh, as a. Um, as, a po- as a poem that lends itself to be seen, perhaps, as an imperial poem. For example, Bandarenka, who produced uh, a new Jezeal biography on Brodsky, he actually sees this as a, as a poem that is very much imperial. Um, but, of course, uh, it is sort of uh, an ambivalent, really, poem. And, of course, uh, if we think about Bandarinka himself, I mean, already in the 1980s, he was uh, writing quite a lot of poems um, uh, himself. And he, for example, uh, when he writes about Brodsky, uh, he says that Brodsky is the imperial poet because he sees his poem on the independence of Yucca Ukraine um, has uh, been exemplary of this has been representative of Brodsky's views but of course Brodsky himself didn't want to publish it he just read it to the public in 1994 so there was just some copies published without really his permission and sometimes even people wanted to say uh, that it could be just a forgery and um, But, of course, Brodsky's position is very complicated because, on the one hand, he doesn't really um, see Ukraine as an independent sort of a country. He sees Ukraine as a sort of, you know, the smaller country that is connected to Russia. And therefore, he has a very strange... Uh, comparison between Taras Shevchenko and Pushkin so basically he thinks that uh, Shevchenko is not as good as Pushkin but it's a very um, it's sort of a, I, I, I would say can um, Bandar, misinterprets really uh, Brodsky quite a lot because he says it is a prophetic statement of Ukraine's inability to develop as an independent nation, having no culture of its own, once it's rejected Russia's great culture. So that is the quote from uh, Catherine's chapter. But other people actually who, who wrote about it, for example, there is a Ukrainian author, Igor Kruchuk, and he, in uh, 2008, he actually thinks, perhaps we should look at this poem as a, as a sort of a contradictory poem that is somehow has both anger and ad, admiration. So he's not really looking at it as a political poem. He actually writes, to judge by what he wrote, Brodsky could have been an imperialist or a liberal or both of them at once, he could have, have changed his political preferences according to circumstance. It is, however, perfectly evident that he was predominantly driven by something quite different, the gift of a maker versus a creative speech poet. So it is an emotional sort of a poem, but you could see that this U- Ukrainian author doesn't really think that it says something... Um, in a very bold way, so Catherine actually was talking a lot quite um, about a strange poet who is very much devoted to Russian imperial sort of uh, uh, visions, and his name is Yuri Kuznetsov. And um, so Kuz, uh, Kuznetsov, um, of course, created a lot of mythologized as well accounts. Of Russian history, and he sees himself as being sort of a, um, a person who is like who could be receptive of other countries or another nations, just like Dostoevsky used to say that for Russians it is important to have this quality of. All responsiveness, so he presents himself as a person who somehow could be at home with Russian folk tradition, with Greek tradition, with um, German tra- traditions, and so on. So he sort of a, he just borrows from all sort of poetic traditions, but um, sometimes he sort of. A, um, uses this very, very strange uh, references to Russian history as a very similar, really, to post-Soviet pronouncements. Already in 97, in 1977, he wrote uh, his poem, "Znamya Kolikova, banner from Kolikova, and uh, Hitri, Hitri, uh, what Catherine writes, the speaker transports a banner from the Battle of Kulikova to the present day. Uh, And the poem begins, So what is interesting, you see, he was experimenting with this type of poetry that was not widely published at all in the 70s. And his approach to history became very, very popular in the post-Soviet period. So uh, because of his vision of Russia's imperial mission. Uh, So basically... For example, one of the poems he wrote says So already you can see some Eurasians that have a trend in his poetry. And in in principle, some people who wrote on Высоцкий, for example, there was a biography of Vysotsky written by Brodsky, um, and Nesterov uh, sort of, uh, so basically um, they uh, actually think that a lot of uh, sort of a quotes from Vysotsky's songs were used by people who are interested in presenting Russia as a superior uh, sort of a country to the West Um so, in some ways, what I find quite interesting in her particular chapter, she actually says that, that this quote Bandariansky's use of empire as a criterion for the construction of national canon runs into difficulties caused by the critic's failure to come up with a definition of the characteristics and qualities of an imperial poet. So, you could see he was trying to push for this special imperial sort of a canon, but he doesn't really provide any specific sort of um, characteristics so he's just talking about Dostoevsky's notion of all responsiveness but also about Russian mission in the world and also there are some themes that relate to the heroic past and so on but in principle it's very difficult really to say how this type of canon can exist. So we find it sort of, uh, very interesting that there was a very strong sort of desire on Bandarienka's um, uh, sort of a part to say that there is an imperial sort of uh, canon in Russian poetry, and especially in contemporary poetry, but really mm, all it is, it just... Um, I think it's just his attempt to make these themes popular and make them perhaps be part of the public space. So I would say that perhaps the most sort of a prominent really uh, part of the book is related to the canon of poetry and commemoration. And of course that sort of a type of poetry was extremely popular and visible in the last 20 years. Um, You could even see today, if you go on YouTube, you just see that a lot of people, either they uh, wrote some songs based on this type of poetry or they just recite them. And I find it quite interesting because Olga Bergolt is still presented uh, in a wider context as a war poet. Although she wrote a lot of other poetry and was very critical of Um, sort of uh, some trends during Stalin's period because she wanted lyric poetry to be more visible instead of epic poetry but also what I find quite interesting about her that she thought that after the Second World War uh, people should write tragedies and you could see it wasn't really very popular with Russian censors and officials
0: Mm -hmm. Um, so there's one more thing I wanted to touch on that you talked about in the beginning, sort of on the same theme of traumatic memory, um, which is the that previously suppressed poetry written in the labor camps and in the Gulag. Um, could you talk about what to what extent does the incorporation of this poetry into the literary canon kind of clash with these attempts to rehabilitate Stalin?
1: Oh, it clashes quite a lot, and that's why, uh, and that's why it is you know there is a strong sort of a tendency to suppress it because it makes uh, the whole sort of um, uh, memory of this period very controversial and uncomfortable. It actually clashes quite a lot, but that's why I think people who were supportive of um, this organization memorial, they would be very interested in this type of poetry, and of course there would be some special occasions when people would organize some perhaps concerts or at least some... Recitals of poetry in commemoration of uh, victims of Gulag, but of course on sort of um, on the wider um, plane, perhaps it's I think it's this type of poetry became more and more marginalised. Especially some people refer to um, uh, Shalamov. Um, in a way that he's a very difficult poet. Perhaps some of his experiences are not really um, expressed in a very clear way. But I think because he's a philosophical poet, some of the things he's sort of writing about just are written not in a very emotional way, just like his prose, uh, because people thought that he had this special um, sort of a. Outlook as if he writes from the point of view of indifference. But it's not indifference. He just plays down emotions. And I think a lot of Russians are not really used very much to this type of poetry. They find it very difficult. On the other hand, I've discovered that, um, uh, for example, Anastasia Tvitaeva wrote quite a lot of poems when she was arrested. And she was arrested on several occasions, and I saw that some of her actually poems uh, featuring Gulag experience are very, very interesting. And again, I mean, people who are interested in Marina and Anastasia Tsutaeva, there is a museum, for example, devoted to Anastasia Tsutaeva in Kazakhstan, you know, and people actually very much cultivate her poetry, including her Gulag poetry. So I think perhaps we could say that Again, that we have sort of a collective memory that exists, might be, in major cities, but also we have this notion of periphery, you know, where people have their own stories and histories, right? For example, um, Tudaiva and her son used to live in Kazakhstan, and therefore she made some friends. Even some friends as well came from different Gulag prisons and so on. So there is a very strong memory, related to her uh, works, right? And the same could be said perhaps about people who uh, who work on Mandarstam. You know, for example, in Voronezh, of course, in the past, there were some festivals and there will be some Conferences dedicated to Mandelstam. So sometimes I think we should look as well at this local identities and local memories rather than one collective memory. I think it uh, makes a lot of sense too. Um, because it's very difficult now to say, well, look, I mean, we're like this type of poetry here, so everyone should be like this. I still s- think that there are some interesting developments that are happening. For example, there were a lot of interesting poets in Siberia, including Leonid Martinov. And today, you know, he's hardly really remembered. Uh, But he was very much interested in futurism, and he was one of the sort of futurist-like poets in Siberia. And he wrote a lot of poems that were related to ecological problems, and also some ethical problems. And I think he he really wasn't liked very much in Moscow by censors in Moscow and so on. And I think there is still an opportunity to discover poets uh, like this. On the other hand, people like Yevtushenko and even Robert you know, they're not really remembered very well today somehow people sort of are not interested in this type of poetry that is somehow open to a lot of people that actually talks to masses, so to speak, you know, because they used to have these performances uh, for a large audience, you know, even used the football field, for this sort of things. But now I think people are more interested in poetry in a different way. I think they are more interested in more intimate sort of spaces where they could perhaps meet with friends and recite some poems or go to certain websites or create some um, groups on social media and would discuss certain type of poets whom they like. I find it very interesting. So we have sort of like different types of communities. Uh, nowadays. And I find myself
0: wondering, I mean, I know this is maybe a little bit tangential, um, but how this is impacting liter- literature education, particularly poetry education, and how young people are, are sort of being exposed to poetry um, who are growing up now.
1: Yeah, it's a very good question, because of course, we wrote as well about the educational canon. And of course, there is a strong trend to use certain poems for school education and uh, I know for example um, in the end of the 1990s you know, people became very interested in Brodsky and of course um, I was actually talking to a couple of friends of mine who are teachers in St. Petersburg and they said it's actually difficult to teach Brodsky people, you know, they find it very difficult to teach him but at the same time, there are a lot of bards nowadays or people who just write their own songs, even though some of them became very popular, like Sorganova, for example, right? So they started sort of using Brodsky's poetry for songs. And of course, young people picked up this type of poetry through their exposure to songs, And at schools, I notice as well, sometimes on YouTube, you find some clips of different evenings. So kids actually perform poetry as a song. So perhaps, you know, in terms of the classroom, they might just read a couple of poems. But in terms of their interest, really, they go beyond this. And they have their own sort of um, uh, competitions for reciting poetry or they use some poems as songs. And I would say, of course, this might be due to the film uh, that promoted a lot of poetry. It was this ironia sудьby ili And people became quite attracted to this idea that you could write songs based on poetry.
0: Oh, yeah. Absolute cultural classic, of course, uh, for for anyone uh, who's from uh, the former Soviet Union will recognize that title. Um, So uh, as we get to uh, the end of our conversation, I wanted to ask you uh, what you're working on now, if you wouldn't mind giving our listeners a preview. Well,
1: um, I think... uh, It would be (laughs) sort of safe to say that I have a booklet that is going to be published in the end of the year. It is a credited book with my friend from London School of Economics um, and it is uh, called um, Dialogism and Authorship. Um, It is a film adaptation of Russian classics. So I've written a chapter for this, but also we wrote an introduction, and it will be published by Edinburgh University Press. We've just submitted the final version in the end of April.
0: Wonderful. Congratulations.
1: Yes. uh, (laughs) Thank you. That was sort of, you know, took a long time as well to to do it. So I think about two years, you know, from the point when we started collecting abstracts and so on. Uh, But it's a a very interesting book. I'm quite actually happy with this. And it took uh, me into a different direction. But at the same time, it, it was interesting to see how some canonical texts or canonical authors were reinvented, really, both in Russia and outside Russia, like in France or in America. For example, we have um, a couple of chapters that deal with the reception of Chekhov. And of course, uh, how Chekhov was modernized uh, recently in some of the films based on his stories of place. So that is uh, quite interesting. But I also wrote a chapter on um, Avdotya Sm- Smirnov's adaptation of Tur- Turgenev's famous novel, Fathers and Sons, and she turned it into a television series so there were four episodes. And I found that she made it very glamorous. You know, somehow she wanted to make it similar to life in Russia today uh, that is enjoyed by very rich people. But at the same time, I felt that there was a lot of nostalgia imagined Nostalgia for this pre revolutionary period, you know, because Adensova looks so glamorous. She has beautiful hats, beautiful dresses, and a lot of uh, jewelry. So it was quite interesting that she reimagined Adensova almost as a heroine of our time.
0: Great. Um, Well, uh, I've been speaking with Dr. Alexandra Smith, a reader in Russian studies in the Department of European Languages and Cultures at the University of Edinburgh, about poetic canons, cultural memory, and Russian national identity after 1991. Dr. Smith, thank you again for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much.